Hey guys, and welcome back to Murder to Missing. I'm your host, Nicole, and my case for you today is out of Richmond, Indiana. This is the story of the disappearance of 28-year-old Nikki McCowan. Born Marilyn Renee Nicole Nikki McCowan, on January 6, 1973, in Richmond, Indiana, Nikki was the youngest of 10 children. At 19 years old, Nikki gave birth to her daughter, Peyton, with her then-boyfriend, Stephen Johnston. Even though the relationship between Nikki and Stephen did not work out, they co-parented Peyton, and she was the center of Nikki's world. In 1994, to support herself and her young daughter, Nikki took a job as a correctional officer at a pre-release detention center in Dayton, Ohio. This job would go on to spark a love and interest in law enforcement for Nikki, who then dreamed of being either an FBI agent or a U.S. Marshal. She then began taking courses in criminal justice at a local community college in Dayton, which was only 45 minutes from her hometown of Richmond. While in high school, Nikki dated a man named Bobby Webster, who had later moved to California, which caused the pair to break up and disconnect. However, by 1998, Bobby was back in Indiana and the pair had reconnected. They were now engaged, and their wedding was planned for sometime in August of 2001. However, they would never make it down the aisle. July 22nd, 2001 started like any other day for Nikki and her fiancé Bobby Webster. The couple and Nikki's nine-year-old daughter Peyton had attended a church service at the Mount Olive Baptist Church on North H Street. After the service, the couple parted ways with Bobby going with his brother to get his suit for the wedding altered and Nikki heading off to her parents' house to drop her daughter off. This was around noon when Nikki had dropped Peyton off. Nikki would then head to the Richmond Coin Laundry on the 1100 block of South E Street in Richmond, Indiana. Around 1 p.m., while her clothes were drying, Nikki returned to her mother's house where her mother, Barbara, had noticed that Nikki seemed a bit agitated. Barbara asked Nikki what was wrong, and Nikki stated that she was upset over these two creepy men harassing her at the laundromat. Now, if I was in Nikki's shoes, I would be upset too. Barbara would later go on to say, quote, I laughed at first because she was such a pretty girl. I just thought that some man was making a play and I said, Nikki, just calm down because she was distraught, end quote. After this interaction between mother and daughter, Nikki would leave her mother's house to go pick her laundry up from the laundromat and a convenience store near the laundromat would later capture Nikki loading her clothes into her vehicle and leaving around 2.45 p.m. Nikki never returned home, and no one has seen or heard from her since. At around 4.30 p.m., Bobby would return back to the apartment 
he shared with Nikki and he noticed that her purse and ID were at the apartment, but Nikki was not. And she also failed to pick up her daughter. Now, at this point, Bobby said that he was not immediately worried about her not being home, but her mother and sister knew that this was a red flag. So Nikki's grandmother eventually contacts Stephen Johnston, who is Peyton's father. And Johnson is quoted as saying, her grandmother called me and said, hey, would you come get Peyton? I'm like, sure. What's going on? End quote. And that's when they told me. So with Peyton in the care of her father, Nikki's siblings and Bobby would then head to her parents' home to devise a game plan to find Nikki. They began making phone calls to friends, family, and they even called around to some local hospitals. Finally, around 9 or 10 at night, with their no word and no call from Nikki, they, you know, they're really starting to panic. So the following day, July 23rd rolls around. It's now 8 a.m. and Nikki's family has contacted the Richmond police to file a missing persons report. And at first, the family members were told that it was too soon, that they had to wait 72 hours. But then I've also seen some reports saying that they were able to file right away. So I'm not too sure on the status of how long the family needed to wait when it came to filing that missing persons report. Now, Nikki was scheduled to work that day on July 23rd, and she did not show up. So this was, you know, this was another red flag for her family. First, she didn't come get Peyton. Now she's not at work. So her family is now even more convinced than ever that Nikki did not disappear on her own. Police would eventually go on to obtain surveillance video of Nikki at a nearby deli. And on this surveillance tape, she is seen buying a soda and then leaving the store. It didn't appear that anybody was following her or talking to her um, during this video. And like I said earlier, we had video of Nikki leaving the laundromat at around 2.45. And then there's no sign of her after that. So police immediately suspect foul play after seeing these two videos. So they end up being able to track down these two men who were allegedly at the laundromat with her and who are harassing her. They question them and it seems like nothing came of it. So during the um, police in official investigations, Nikki's family and friends started organizing additional search parties. Uh, her sisters, her fiance, all of these individuals were involved in posting flyers and handing out um, pictures of Nikki. And they went around Richmond, Indianapolis, and even Dayton, which is where Nikki worked. So during these searches, Nikki's sister, Tammy Hughes, says that Bobby begins acting strangely. She's quoted as saying, he was always dressed up, I guess, ready for if he was on camera. Tammy also said, quote, I could care less how I look. If I'm looking for my sister, I'm looking for my sister. And 
I agree with Tammy on that one. If my sister went missing, I don't, I don't think I would care about how I looked, but at the same time, everybody reacts differently when faced with a traumatic situation. So I can't judge Bobby too harshly for that. However, the same can't be said for Nikki's family. So, you know, of course, they're kind of like side-eyeing him and raising an eyebrow. Now, after her disappearance, Bobby eventually cancels the wedding and gets the reception hall deposit back. So this happened within three days of Nikki disappearing. And he would eventually go on to try and return the wedding rings for cash, but he was unsuccessful because the receipt for the rings had Nikki's name on it and not his. And he also called the community college that Nikki was attending and asked if he could get that unused tuition money back. However, he was told by the community college that her work was the one paying for her tuition, so he would not be able to get that money back. And it's been reported that he did become upset about that. Now, all of this kind of had detectives and Nikki's family kind of like side-eyeing Bobby and just looking at him a little suspiciously. However, Bobby would say that the only reason he sold any of these things was that he wanted to get money together for the searches to look for Nikki and that he wanted to buy a cell phone. So I'm assuming the cell phone was so that he could stay in contact with police and Nikki's family and just be able to contact them quicker. Now, I personally don't know how I feel about his actions. On one hand, I want to say, yeah, that's super weird, super suspicious. But on the other hand, I don't know. Because like I said earlier, I, I don't know how I would react if my husband went missing I truly don't know how I would react because I'm not thinking rationally at this point. And even though Bobby was acting super, super strange, super suspicious, police end up clearing him as a suspect. So Detective Miller, which is one of the detectives on Nikki's case, would go on and say, quote, he started having behavior that was somewhat suspicious, end quote. So Richmond police ask Bobby if he would be willing to take a polygraph test. At first he refused, but then later he agrees to take this test. Supposedly, his test showed signs of deception, but one source that I read for this case has them saying that, um, you know, on the question, did you have anything to do with the disappearance of Nikki McCowan? He said no. And supposedly that had deception linked to that question. Now, Bobby denies that he failed the polygraph test. And both Bobby and his lawyer say that they have never seen the results of this test. It's so... I can't say one way or another on if he did take this test, if he did fail it, but police eventually rule him out. So 
whatever evidence that they couldn't find obviously says that, you know, Bobby is not the cause of her disappearance. Now we're going to fast forward to November 3rd of 2001, which is three and a half months after Nikki disappeared. Her car would eventually be found uh, by police, and the car she was driving was a 1990 GMC Jimmy 4x4. And the location of where this car was found shocked everybody. So her car was found in the meadows of Catalpa. I'm probably saying that wrong and I'm really sorry. Parking lot. Now, this is an this is an apartment complex in Dayton, Ohio. This apartment complex is 45 minutes east of her home in Richmond, Indiana. And it turns out that Nikki used to live in this apartment complex. And this is why it was so shocking. So her vehicle showed absolutely no sense of a break-in and it appeared as if there was no struggle inside of the car. Police, however, do find her clean folded laundry in the back seat, which just matches up to that surveillance video of her putting her laundry into the back of her car and driving away from the Richmond Coin Laundry on July 22nd. The police, however, did notate that her battery and stereo from the vehicle were missing and the driver's seat was also in a position that indicated that Nikki was the last person to drive the car or at least someone very close to her height. So it seems to me that Nikki left Richmond Coin Laundry on July 22nd and just disappeared from the face of the earth. And then on November 3rd, her car is just plopped in this apartment complex. And that's, that, that can't happen. That, that's not logical. So this leads police to believe that Nikki likely drove to this apartment complex of her own accord. And they think that maybe she went to see someone she knew. Because like I said, she once lived in this apartment complex. She lived there in 1997 with a former boyfriend who happened to still live there. This former boyfriend is Stephen Johnston, which happens to be the father of Nikki's child. So police would then give Steve a polygraph and he passes. He provided the police with his DNA and he even had an alibi for the time of his disappearance. So police were pretty quickly able to rule him out as a suspect. And they do find out that Nikki made a phone call to a coworker who lived in Dayton. And this coworker supposedly told police that um, Nikki had called her to ask her about some beauty, beauty products and that 
um, the coworker would go on to tell Nikki that she was able to purchase those beauty products in Dayton. So I, I can't find much about this, this phone call. I think I read it in like one source, one or two. So I'm, I'm not holding that as a strong, like possibility. So once the, once the car's found, police would then take it back to Richmond to process and they're going to look for DNA, blood, fingerprints, and any other type of evidence that they could potentially find, um, you know, to see if maybe they can figure out what happened to Nikki. And unfortunately, they weren't able to find anything. Or so they thought. So, like I said, this apartment complex that Nikki's car was found in, she used to live there. But somebody else besides Nikki and besides Stephen lived in this apartment complex. And that's a co-worker of Nikki's named Tommy Swint. So Swint and Nikki both worked at the same correctional facility in Dayton. And there was rumors that these two were more than just friends, or at least that's what Tommy wanted. As police began to dig into Swint and speak with friends and family, they discovered that it was all rumors. There was no relationship between him and Nikki and that Swint was just obsessed with Nikki. And this obsession is revealed in a very ominous and super creepy way, if you ask me. So he sent her a present for her bridal shower, which seems innocuous and innocent. However, that present was lingerie. And Tammy Hughes told investigators, you know, told investigators that that he did this and that's I don't know it's got me stumbling over my words right now and I've got goosebumps because that's super creepy to to even talk about to read about or even to be given a gift like that from somebody who's not my spouse or my partner so police immediately begin to dig into Swint's background and they discover that he wasn't just obsessive but also violent Police detective Patty Tackett is quoted as saying, very violent towards women. That seems to be the common denominator, was that it was violence towards women, end quote. So Bobby and Stephen begin to drop off the radar as suspects for police. And police start to really kind of zero in on Tommy. Now, he is less than cooperative when it comes to speaking to the police. He wouldn't answer their questions entirely, or he would just go off on a tangent that was completely unrelated to the line of questioning. And police weren't able to force him answer these questions, and they had no solid evidence to suggest that he was involved in Nikki's disappearance. So they kind of have to let him go. And at this point, they do consider him a person of interest. And from that point on, the case kind of goes cold. Leads go cold, and it would be six long years before this case would start to heat up again. So Richmond police would get a tip about Tommy. So this tip is going to take us 
all the way into 2007. So Swint's now working as a law enforcement officer in Trotwood, Ohio. So officers from Richmond travel over to Trotwood and they sit down with Swint's chief and they asked him point blank, did you know he's a major person of interest in the disappearance of Nikki McCowan? Spoiler alert, they did not. So upon finding out this information, the Troutwood Police Department gave Swint the option to either resign or be fired. He resigned. But he did not do it without a fight. So he immediately lawyers up and attempts to sue the city. And it's during this very public lawsuit that an anonymous tip would come in. In November of 2007, that suggested Swint had a connection to the 1991 murder of Tina Marie Ivory. Tina's murder happened in Jefferson Township, Ohio, and at the time of the murder, DNA fingerprints and semen were all found and collected and by may of 2008 the evidence collected from tina's body would go on to suggest that swint may have been her murderer and in november 2009 a crime lab would then go on to match swint's fingerprints to those found at the scene of the crime so this is a massive development for richmond police they believe now firmly that Swint had something to do with Nikki's disappearance. And he went from just being a person of interest to their prime suspect. Richmond Police Department um, Detective Michelle Miller was hopeful that once Tommy was in custody, they would be able to figure out what happened to Nikki. And all of this occurred from an anonymous tip. I will say it again, an anonymous tip tip. Don't have to give your name. Anyway, off my soapbox. So by February of 2010, authorities had enough evidence to get an arrest warrant for Swint. And by this point, he's living and working in Alabama. So the authorities from Dayton would team up with the authorities in Alabama to bring Swint into custody. However, Upon approaching the home that Swint was in, they heard a gunshot. Swint had killed himself with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And at this point, Tommy had not officially been charged with Nikki's disappearance. And so it was looking kind of grim. So did the answers to what happened to Nikki die that day? Detective Miller doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to think so. Detective Miller said, quote, I believe that there's another person of interest that Tommy was close to that has some sort of answers, if not all of them. End quote. Police believe that there was a love interest of Tommy's that worked with him at the time of Nikki's disappearance. And they believe that there may have been pillow talk between him and this love interest and that this person may know more, if not all of what happened to Nikki and where she is said it before and I'll say it again an anonymous tip the wait for answers is 
it's just almost too much for Nikki's family. It's been 21 years now since her family has last seen her. And Bobby, her fiance, said that his life has not been the same since. Peyton, who was just nine at the time of her mother's disappearance, is now an adult. And she wants to continue looking for her mother. In July of 2021, she said, quote, what I want to do is I want to get back out there. I want to start doing footwork again. I want to post flyers. I want to go around and I want to go back and look at the case and see what we missed, end quote. And Nikki's sister, Tammy, shared a message on True Crime Daily for the woman cops believe may hold the answer to her sister's disappearance, quote, I know Sweat told you something. Clear your conscience. You're supposed to be a Christian. Go ahead. Get right with God. Get right with us. End quote. Police firmly believe that Swint was not only involved in Tina Ivory's death, but also Nikki McCowan's death. Now, they don't have solid proof that Nikki is deceased, but... This is one of their working theories. Let's just call it that. Detective Patty Tackett said, quote, do I believe there's a good possibility that are up, there are other people he has harmed? Yes, I do. So are we thinking that Swint's possibly a serial killer and he can be connected to other disappearances and other unsolved murders? Who knows? An anonymous tip was, you know, was what got police back onto Swint and got him connected to Tina's case. And they were uncovering this evidence. So you could be that anonymous tip for Nikki's case. You could be somebody who calls the Richmond Police Department and says, I know where she is. I know what happened to her. Somebody knows. And although her disappearance is still considered unsolved, the family and the police have not given up. They're more determined than ever to find these answers. And her daughter Peyton has vowed to find her mother. And I hope with every last fiber in my body that she finds her mother. And when Nikki disappeared, she was five foot, two inches tall. She weighed 115 pounds. She had brown hair, brown eyes. She had a small scar on the right side of her face and a small scar over her left eye. She was last seen wearing a bright pink floral shirt dark and dark shorts. She was 28 years old at the time of her disappearance, and she would be 49 years old now. If you were Anybody you know knows anything, please, please, please get in contact with the Richmond Police Department. 765-983-7247. Let's get this family the answers that they are desperately searching for.